19. And uh, I think it'll be a good reminder uh, to each of us this morning as we, as we think about where we are at as a church and where we're going and how we can remain faithful uh, to those things as well. Um, before we begin, this, this passage, um, who is written by James, who's the brother of Jesus, is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are most likely once associated uh, with the church in Jerusalem, a church in which James had become the prominent leader as other disciples had sort of moved out to preach the gospel in other parts of um, the area. So James, the brother of Jesus, uh, if you remember from the gospel, is one of part of Jesus' family who uh, tried to get him to come home, who's pretty doubtful about his ministry. And then later in the gospel, we see that there's this point where Jesus appears to this brother. And at some point in that time, there's this transformation of his life. And he ends up being eventually one of the more prominent um, early church um, leaders, particularly in the church in Jerusalem, known as James the Just. Um, deeply loved the poor, served the poor, um, was a man of prayer, was well known for these things. So according to Acts chapter 8, these Christians that were in Jerusalem had scattered after Stephen was stoned, martyred. And so it's no coincidence that James opens this letter by saying, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then immediately begins to address the theme of trials and sufferings. And so if you've read the the letter of James, you'll know that that's a very prominent theme in the first chapter. And as we move into chapter 2, our section deals with the delicate balance between faith and works. And though this is a well-known section of Scripture, I think it has some great takeaways uh, for us this morning as well. So I'd invite you to, to join me as we read James two fourteen to 19. If you want, you can also put a, a finger in Matthew chapter 25, because we're going to be in there a few times uh, as well. So uh, if you want to look that up as well. This is what it says. Oh, I don't have control here. One second. All right. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace... Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We're going to end right there. But James continues on and giving an example in this in the same vein of thought. Uh, we're not going to have time to cover all of that, so we're going to end at verse 19, but feel free to read right to the, the end of uh, verse 26 because it still continues that theme. In this passage, James converses with an imaginary person, which maybe seems a little strange, but there's clearly some issues going on in this group of uh, Jewish Christians that he's speaking to. And so this imaginary person who claims to have faith but has no deeds, a person who claims that you can separate faith from works. And so we can safely assume that this was a prominent issue in the people that James was dealing with. And so he addresses it bluntly and face, <clears throat> and face on. The noun faith appears 16 times in the book of James. And 11 times in this section alone. Many of which are used in connection with this imaginary person who claims to have faith but has no deeds. The point of this passage is that this person doesn't really have true faith. 
He claims to have it, but he doesn't. His so-called faith is dead and worthless. It does not save. Quite literally, it does not work. This is important because sometimes when people read and explain this section of James, they think James is contrasting someone who has immature faith with someone who has mature faith. Or someone who has nominal faith with someone who has authentic faith. He's telling us that you either have faith that saves or you don't. There's no in between. So James begins with three questions to this person. The first is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Second question is, can that faith save him? The third question is, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? James brings out some harsh realities to his readers, that faith devoid of works is not true faith. So for the purposes of this morning... How is faith evident in the life of followers of Jesus? The simple answer is that faith is evident by the fruit that we display. And we're going to get to talking a little bit more about that in a minute. But James hones in on a very particular fruit that Jesus also held in high regard. And so the first thing that we see is faith is evident in how we serve and love the poor. And we don't want to miss this this morning. This is James's main example. And his insinuation here is that believers that don't care about their poor brothers and scissors, sisters are not saved. Now, that may sound harsh, but it's the clear truth of these verses. It says, without clothes and lacks daily food. In their poverty, they don't have the covering from the cold. They stand shamed and miserable. They literally don't have food for the day. They're starving. They are not in a mild need. This is severe need. Now we need to remember that James was the leader in Jerusalem. When we look at the historical narrative around James in that time, we know that there was several hundred thousands of people that were severely poor in Jerusalem. We know that Paul collected offerings from richer churches in his ministry to bring back finances to help the poor in Jerusalem on James's request. This isn't a, an attempting a plea of guilt by James to his readers. He's being honest about the condition of his neighbors and his brothers and sisters that he sees daily. So imagine seeing someone in need, like I described, and then saying to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat well. This statement is a common benediction. Even a prayer that you would say over someone, go in peace, or I pray you have a great day. The verbs in the latter part of the phrase are either in a middle or a passive voice, and I'll give you those two translations. So it can be translated in one of two ways. Either the person is saying, warm and feed yourself, that would be the middle voice, like as if he could, or stay warm and well-fed, which would be the passive voice, which essentially suggests that he already has all he needs. So James asks the question, what good is this? What good is a faith that responds like that? James is saying that Christians who fail to have poverty-stricken others are not saved. Their faith is dead. Now, we can do all sorts of justifying and cartwheels around the text to try and find our way out of that truth. But someone who responds like this to a brother or sister without clothes, without daily food, they do not have a faith that saves. It's exactly the same emphasis 
that John gives in, his, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brothers in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? The implication is that it can't. Before we move on this morning, I want to highlight two things that we need to make clear. The first is that the acts of mercy are not a means of salvation. So we are not saved by what we do, and that's not what James is teaching here. James has made it clear in the first chapter, if you read it, of his letter, that faith is something that God gives. It's this gift, not something we manufacture. We are saved by the gift of grace that we receive from Christ. We don't help the poor in order to be saved, rather than being the means of our salvation. So this echoes Paul's sentiments in in Ephesians chapter 2, where it's by grace that we have been saved through faith, For the purpose of doing good works. If you read the conclusion of the chapter, that's where this all leads to. It's not by good works so that no one can boast, but we are created in in Christ to do good works out of this mercy that's come. Second thing we see is acts of mercy are a necessary evidence of salvation or a natural overflow of faith and salvation in our lives. So acts of mercy are not a means of salvation, but acts of mercy are a necessary evidence of salvation. James never speaks of deeds that we do as a way to learn favor from God. That should be a work righteousness approach to deeds, meaning we could be saved by the things we do. James doesn't teach that. Instead, James always speaks of deeds as a fruit produced by faith in Christ. One of the fruits of faith is mercy towards the poor. Tim Keller, a pastor of the Redeemer Church in New York City, a church that is very well known, not because just Tim Keller is there, but also because it's been a church that has served the the needs of people in New York and around the world for decades, has been an example in the evangelical world of that. Says, when the Son of Man, sorry, says that mercy to the full range of human need is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional or an addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is a sign of genuine faith. Keller's point, along with James, echoes Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 34. When the Son of Man came in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate from them one from another, just as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Did you catch that language? Jesus speaks of those who are blessed by the father, as those who inherit the kingdom kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has blessed these people, and he's given them the kingdom. This is the mercy of God. This is this gift that we're talking about. This thing that God has done and given to us. But see how the mercy of God transforms how they live. Notice the first person pronouns in verse 35 and 36. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
Then listen to the response of the righteous in verse 37 to 40. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. One commentator puts it this way, ministering to the poor is equated with ministering to Christ himself. The overflow of a Christian's heart is to serve, and the Christian's external acts of mercy are clear evidence of the eternal mercy of God in his heart. But let's take it the other side. Let's take a look at the other side of this picture. Jesus continues in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, 46. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then you will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So those who do not take care of the poor, the poor, Jesus says, depart and judge them because their hearts have clearly not been transformed by the mercy of God. Hear that this morning. Jesus is not demonstrating this by saying that those who don't take care of the poor, this isn't out of a guilt thing. He's saying that when we don't have a desire to care for others and show mercy, it means that our hearts have not been transformed by that gift I talked about. Acts of mercy are not a means of salvation. They are the necessary evidence. This is so important because we must remember that guilt is not the motivation for caring for people. And so often we can see it that way. I feel guilty, therefore maybe I should help this person or do this or do that. We don't provide for the poor because we must. No, the gospel motivates us to care for the poor. We provide for the poor because we are compelled by the mercy of God that has radically transformed our hearts and his mercy overflows from our lives. This is what Charles Spurgeon said about why the saints fed the hungry and clothed the naked. The saints fed the hungry and clothed the naked because it gave them much pleasure to do so. They did it because they could not help doing it. Their new nature impelled them to it. They did it because it was their delight to do good. They did, it, they did good for Christ's sake because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. Our faith must be evident in how we serve and love the poor. The motivation comes from the mercy of God at work in us because of the gift of salvation. This outworking in our lives is clearly taught and is a clear heart of Jesus. Now, to be realistic, maybe you don't have a ton of interaction with the poorest of poor. But I would suggest two realities out of this text before we move on. How might you support those who are serving the desperate poor and the needs that they have? That could be locally, that could be internationally. How might you be involved? The second thing would be, though we may live in a different time than James, there are people in our midst who need mercy. 
who need help? How might you demonstrate that? How might you show mercy to those in need around you in your sphere of influence? Because I may have people around me that are in need of mercy, but you may know completely different people who are in need of mercy. How might you provide that mercy? Now, James goes into some detail about this specific fruit being, the evident, being evident in believers' life. But overall, the context of the section is that faith is evident in the fruit of our lives. And I don't want us to miss this. Though taking care of the poor is an essential part of authentic faith, it was close to Jesus' heart, clearly close to the apostles and the early church leaders. It often would be something that's close to our heart. And one of the realities is that not all those who say they have faith are true. How do we know that someone has legitimate faith? James says in verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James says that his faith will be clearly on display by how he lives, by his action. Now, is James saying that Christians are never to speak the truth? Absolutely not. And it would be shocking for anybody to come to that conclusion if you read the letter of James. What he is implying is that your faith, what you believe is to be demonstrated by how you live. And let's be honest, it it usually is, right? Our faith is usually demonstrated from the outflow of our heart. What we do with our time, what we do with our money usually clearly demonstrates our heart. So how is fruit evident in our lives? If our faith is to be seen and proven through how we live, how are these things cultivated in our lives? So first, we must remember, as John chapter 15 points out, that Jesus is the true vine. All fruit is developed through him. He cultivates it, prunes it, brings it to fruition. And it happens by us walking close to him, by being close to him, spending time with him, prayer, reading the word, serving, speaking to him, trusting in him and being obedient to him. Second, fruit is developed by... the believer through the Spirit, by being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is always drawing us close to Christ and is that work in us is, that, is in conflict with the desires of our flesh. The Spirit is always leading us to the things that Christ has for us and our flesh is always desiring the things of the world. And he's always bringing us towards fruit. And Paul speaks of this fruit in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are character traits that mirror the character of Jesus. And as they become evident in our lives, lead us into developing fruit in our lives. Finally, it's out of these things, being connected to Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, that the fruit of the teaching of the gospel can become evident in the life of each believer. Remember what I mentioned earlier. It's Christ at work in us that leads us to good works. These works are the outflow of the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the poor. Take care of the widow and the orphan. Care for and help the poor. Bear with one another. Strive to keep the unity of the saints. Be joyful always in the Lord. And the list could go on. Our faith is evident by the fruit displayed in our lives. 
How does the fruit in your lives demonstrate your faith in Christ? As we move into verse 19, James makes an interesting statement in verse 19. And this is where we'll conclude this morning, but as we look at it, it's going to bring out some realities of what faith is not. Verse 19 says, You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Verse 19 gives us some ideas of what faith is not. Faith is not mere intellectual knowledge. Every Jewish man and woman would have been familiar with the statement that, that James makes. God is one. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James says, even the demons believe this. Demons know and believe many things that we believe. They believe in the existence of God, the deity of Christ, then the presence of heaven and hell. They believe, they know Christ is the eternal judge, and they know that Christ alone is able to save. And so, it's not simply that we might know something, or know Jesus, that brings true faith in our lives. It's not simply intellectual knowledge, and and I want you to hear this, because there are some who would tell you this. It's just about simply knowing what the Bible says, and you're good. But that's not, that's not true. Even the demons know what the Bible says. They don't follow Jesus. James says the demons believe this and shudder. They know who God is. And it creates liter- a literal emotional response of fear. Demons know Christ. Matthew 8, verse 28 to 32 shows this. As Jesus casts these demons out of these two men... And before he sends them into the pigs pigs before they run into the water, they say in fear, have you come to torment us before the time? This verse is interesting because it gives us this contrast. Demons can intellectually believe about Jesus. They can even have an emotional response to Jesus. But faith isn't mere intellect. And it certainly can't just be an emotional response. Faith must be deeper, rounded, and lived out. So faith must also involve a willful obedience. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some level of intellectual knowledge or that there can't be any emotional response. Of course there can be. But if our faith is found only in one of those two things, it will not be true faith. Why have I brought this up this morning? Why has this idea of faith and works been on my mind? I've had the privilege of, of being around the church for about 20 years. As a youth, young adult, and coming back and, and working here for just over 10 years. And there's two things that I've always deeply appreciated about Tabri Free. Even through the times where things maybe haven't always been the best, or maybe times that we've been in struggles or transition. And it's the hearts to care for people and the passion to serve and love the poor. Those things have been evident here, and as long as I've attended, and some of you have attended a lot longer than me, and and would resonate with that, there's been a missions presence here for far longer than I've ever attended. And though there has been unique seasons in this church, a decade and a half of mission trips to Mexico, a fund that provided grants and matching donations that raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for people all over the world, missions organizations... There's been passionate members of missions committees. And at the same time, in a more subtle way, there's been, a, there's been benevolent committees who have been faithful, diligent, and compassionate 
in helping those in need. Never mind countless stories of individuals in the church supporting others through time, finance, and acts of service and love. And though all of these things matter, it's not the things that have been done that are impressive or most important, but the consistent heart that has been behind these actions. My encouragement for us this morning is to continue to take the words of James seriously, to be disciples of authentic faith, where our faith is demonstrated by the Spirit, by the fruit in our lives, being led by the Spirit. It's no secret that we're moving into a new direction in the church. But as we move there, my encouragement would that we would be steadfast and faithful in the things that God has put in our heart. That we would care deeply for people. When we see needs, that we would address them in the right and responsible way. That we would be passionate about helping missions, missionaries and mission organizations who serve the poor. That these things would have high value. But more importantly than these would just have high value to us as a church, I pray that they would have high value to you. In your families. In your marriages. In the way that you serve individually and maybe corporately. There's a million ways to be involved in in those kinds of things. There's benevolence here at the church. There's many missionaries that that come through and are looking for support and encouragement. There's opportunity to give your time and your money. There's things locally that you can be involved in. I'm not going to give you a cookie-cutter approach that you have to do this, but I want you to search your heart about it. How might you help the poor? How might you show mercy to others? In what ways may fruit be developed in your life? How might you love others in your midst? What are some areas that you may need to depend on Jesus more? Like I said, there are many ways for our faith to be in action. But James is clear that our action is the outflow of the mercy that is at work in us. Followers of Jesus' faith is evident in their lives being transformed by the mercy of God and the evidence of spiritual fruit in their lives. Friends, may you continue to see spiritual fruit cultivated in your life. May we be a people that has great compassion for the poor and who are in need of mercy. And may we see Jesus and his spirit grow us to people who live our faith out in action, in service, in humility, so that some might know of his great love and that in our care, people would know of his great mercy. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are grateful for our time this morning. Spend time in worship and in your word. Father, we pray that as we consider the words of James and that our faith has to be lived out in actions, not for a sense of salvation or because it's gonna make us right with you, but because when we wrestle with your mercy and your goodness and the gift of grace that you have given us, what other response could there be than to help those that you love for our hearts to be broken by the things that break your heart? Help us to be people that put our faith in action, not by what we can do, but by your spirit at work in empowering us. Help us be faithful to you and the things that you call us to. Help us to see needs in and around us, in front of us. Be 
be leading us by your spirit. Lord, if we're here today and there's no way that we're helping people in mercy or caring for the poor, I pray that you would provide an opportunity, a conversation, an email, something that would pull at our hearts that you're leading us into. There's so many worthy ways for, we, for us to get involved, both locally, internationally, and maybe even in our own sphere of influence. Lead us into those things. Help us to be people of obedience who desire to see fruit grow in our lives. By having a deep desire to have more of you and less of us. We pray this. That there would be more of you and less of us. You would help us to have our faith in action. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'd invite you to rise again as we sing our closing song.